Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is this week's co-host, Claire Biddles. Hello. So we just watched slash rewatched the 1932 pre-code classic Shanghai Express, starring Marlena Dietrich and featuring Anna Mae Wong in her most iconic role. Directed by Josef von Sternberg, this atmospheric drama follows a group of people who are held hostage during a train journey between Peking and Shanghai during the Chinese Civil War. So this film, I adore. I am, as regular listeners know, a big fan of pre-code cinema. I've watched a lot of films in the early 30s. Claire, had you seen this before? I'd not seen it before, but I was just saying before we started recording that I'm looking forward to talking about this because I feel like the last few films that we've done have been me being like, this is what I like. But this is a bit more like something that Gav is a lot more knowledgeable about and I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to teach me about this era because I've only seen very little pre-code and I have seen some of Josef van Sternberg and Marlene Dietrich's other films. I've seen Morocco and I've seen Blue Angel, mainly because uh, last year I went to the Film and Television Museum in Berlin and Ooh. they have like, which is so great. Would love to go. Percent recommend it to everybody it's so brilliant and they have got obviously a huge display of Marlene Dietrich stuff so when I got home from that holiday I was like continue the vibe (laughs) and watch those two but I'd never seen this one before so it was brand new to me and I loved it. I have not actually seen Blue Angel which was kind of her breakout film but I've seen a few others and she is of course one of the most enthralling superstars in film history So this came out at the point where she was already incredibly famous and successful in Hollywood. Um, And she had a very fast breakout, as was the case for a lot of people in this period, because films were coming out very fast, like they were produced much faster than today. And also the rise of like talkies in around 1929, 1930 just meant that like cinema was exploding and was completely ubiquitous. So she started out in Germany as a stage actress and cabaret performer and singer and also silent film actress. And then she had this breakout role, as Claire said, with The Blue Angel, where she played um, a cabaret singer in 1930 and that was her first collab with Josef von Sternberg and this turned out to be a career defining partnership for both of them. The circumstances around the Blue Angel which became this huge international hit were very kind of dramatic behind the scenes because it's unclear to what extent these two were lovers but they definitely had this very intense and tumultuous relationship that led to von Sternberg's wife accusing her of being this like I think the gossip columnist described it as like a marriage pirate or like a husband pirate or something, you know, basically a man stealer. And she was, of course, this very vampy figure. She also, to modern audiences, is very famously queer and also a queer icon. But they had this very intriguing relationship I'll talk about in a second. But before that, I think I should just let people know who Josef von Sternberg is, because he, I think, is a bit less of the famous name here. Obviously, film buffs will know him because he made this run of really iconic films in the 30s with Dietrich. But before that, he uh, was born in Austria. He came from an Austrian Jewish background. He had a very abusive father, which I think shaped him psychologically, unsurprisingly. But he was very well-traveled because they emigrated to the US when he was just a little kid. And he started working in the film industry as a teenager, then was in the US Army during World War I, and then moved to Europe to work on silent films. So he was working in film for almost his entire life. And quite early on in his career, 
still in the mid-1920s when film was quite young in terms of like feature cinema, he became this very sought-after director in America. So he signed a contract with MGM in 1925 before talkie films were even invented. And then his biggest breakout was Blue Angel. So he and kind of Marlene Dietrich became this inextricably linked pair. And there's this fantastic quote from his memoir, which I have not read, but I've read some parts of. And um, this man's vibes were like, off. (laughs) (laughs) He was a toxic individual, but in a way that is completely fascinating in the context of this film and all of his films with her and Marlena. Because this quote from him is describing when he first saw her as a nightclub singer. She leaned against the wings with a cold disdain for buffoonery in sharp contrast to the effervescence of others. She was indifferent to my presence. And first of all, it's just like an incredible description of her because it really echoes her film persona in a very mm-hmm. recognisable way because she's got this very aloof, glamorous, disdainful, dominant attitude in a lot of her films. But crucially, this was an image that was partially created by Sternberg himself because he was this absolute control freak. He was very unpleasant to work with to the extent where his career basically never recovered after he stopped working with her. But unlike a lot of stories of this type, it's not really a story about him brutalizing and bullying her, although clearly it was like a very intense partnership but more like she was the only person who could really tolerate him and she (laughs) routinely was like I owe everything to him and my obedience to him and there's this great criterion I see I will link to in the show notes but there's a quote from it which describes him as to become a director is more often than not to reveal yourself as a control freak but von Sternberg was the original micromanager and his arrogance was legendary oh god I know and there's this other anecdote about like at one point they had this fight and Sternberg was giving Dietrich the silent treatment. So she pretended to injure herself from falling off a horse. And then the article says, the great sadist ran to her in tears, (laughs) cradling her limp body and begging for forgiveness. And it's just like the way these people were behaving. So there was this incredible power dynamic that just was very strange. And there was a lot of kind of exchange between the idea of her being portrayed as this sexually empowered and tough yet vulnerable women. And then all of that being completely shaped by his desire Mm -hmm. to like create her as a character and public figure, including Mm -hmm. the fact that after the Blue Angel came out and she moved to Hollywood and also had kind of like a, she had kind of a femme makeover because like she was quite butch, but also like to be in Hollywood, you have to have a much more feminine persona, but also Mm -hmm. like he made her lose like 20 pounds, which is part of the reason why she has this incredibly familiar like gaunt look which isn't really present in her earlier film roles i feel like i've been monologuing for ages already no 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 it's really good it's really good (laughs) um but there's two other things we should talk about before we start talking about the film itself and that's Mm -hmm. the concept of the pre-code area and also the film's other big star anime wong so i'm sure most listeners are already aware of this but for those who aren't the pre-code era was this very short but influential period between the start of talky sound films in like 1929 and 30 and the point where the Hayes code kicked in with censorship in american cinema in 1934 so between 1930 and 1934 
there is this massive number of really quite edgy and mature films by modern standards, films that had a lot more sexual content, films that had explicit or implicit queer stories and characters. They obviously were still incredibly racist during this period, but they were more racially diverse than happened afterwards Mm. because in addition to cutting out a lot of kind of sexual and, you know, feminist themes which is one of the key things that the very conservative and uh, Christian Hayes Code kicked in in the 30s. They also were like obsessed with eliminating any signs of interracial relationships. So that's why a lot of the films in the 1950s particularly are very clean. There's a lot of films in the late 30s and 40s that kind of move into subtextual adult material. But when you watch a film like this, It just makes it explicitly clear that the protagonist is a sex worker. And Mm -hmm. instead of it being a story about her kind of being moralized or being forced to suffer at the end, which is the way a lot of that kind of narrative ends, it actually concludes with this religious guy who's been scolding her, realizing that she's actually a good person. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the characters in this, because it's obviously set in China, but it's mostly white people traveling on this train. It's a very negative portrayal of white people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is. And I think it's really interesting to watch this film and other pre-code films at the moment because there's so much moralising discourse about films going around at the moment. And so it is quite radical how it shows, how it normalises her and Anna Mae Wong's uh, work as sex workers and their kind of interracial friendship and allegiance although there is racism obviously that we will go to also I think another interesting example of kind of what was seen in pre-code films in another one of the Josef van Strindberg and Marlene Dietrich films is in Morocco where Marlene Dietrich kind of dresses as a man like in a tux she's cabaret singer and she kisses a woman in the audience and the woman is scandalized but it is it is just kind of part of it and it isn't like a big deal and it's yeah it is amazing to watch something that is almost a hundred years old when these conversations are still happening now about what should be seen and these kind of faux outrage about what's depicted in films and if we're showing things in films then it means that the director co-signing them and all that kind of nonsense which unfortunately is prevalent but yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) it's not insensible people conversations but (laughs) in the discourse yeah I mean this is a period where part of the way that people got round the guidelines I guess prior to the Hays Code obviously you weren't allowed to do whatever but you could get away with a lot of stuff by having this kind of final real conversion where someone can behave or a woman can behave really scandalously but then get their Mm -hmm. comeuppance or get married at the end you know Mm -hmm. when I think about this like compared to Blonde V which is another Marlene Dietrich von Sternberg film that's more along those lines. In this one, she is from the get-go depicted as this kind of experienced older woman. And not older as in she's like 40, she's like 26 or something, you know. Mm-hmm. But the way she's characterised is kind of the opposite of either a virginal ingenue or someone who's been sort of corrupted and ruined by their experiences. It's like she's maybe not happy with her life, but she is to, in some way kind of in control of it and the film isn't trying to make it look like she's completely miserable. 
any more than the other characters who are like miserable because they're moralizing or creeps. <laughs> <laughs> Do we also want to mention about Anime Wong before we yes, get started? Yes, absolutely. So superstar. I think over the past couple of years, in part due to Babylon, which I have not watched and will not be watching, Anime <laughs> Wong has become a lot more well-known, which is really great. She is one of these kind of interesting Hollywood figures who was treated very unfairly by the industry due to racism, but still managed to carve out this really successful career by the standards of the time. So she is the first Chinese-American Hollywood star, and she started out with silent films in the mid-20s. She was born in 1905. And because she was getting a lot of roles that were kind of racist, she moved to Europe. She did more silent films in Europe. And then during the pre-code era, she did this cluster of very prominent American films, the most well-regarded of which is Shanghai Express. I've not seen the others, but there were films like Daughter of the Dragon and Jabba Head. And then after that, once the code kicked in, it got trickier to be a person of colour in American cinema. And one of the big kind of turning points of her career that's now kind of seen as this iconic example of anti-Asian racism is that there was this film that came out called The Good Earth in 1937, which is a drama about Chinese farmers that was this very serious, like big, acclaimed film. And she was up for the lead role and it ended up being given to a white actress in Yellowface. So this was a movie about Chinese people where the majority of the cast were white, if not pretty much everyone. I've not seen this one. (laughs) But um, during this period, there was like so much kind of Orientalist cinema. And in this movie, you get this really interesting kind of contrast combination of Anime Wong in this amazing electrifying role. Like she is definitely a supporting character, but she is just so good and her character is so kind of interesting and mysterious. And then also you get the primary antagonist of the film, is meant to be this biracial white and Chinese man, but he is played by a white actor who specialised in Asian roles. It's, you know, it's a racist role. And like at the time that would have been recognised as racist by Chinese and Chinese American viewers, but was just considered the norm by the white majority of the audience. Yeah, when I looked back to see what else that guy had been in, it was pretty astonishing to see how many Fu Manchu and Charlie Chan. It was like, this is a dark era. Yeah, (laughs) truly, truly. (laughs) But at the same time, it's like, it is interesting, right? Because this film was filmed, you know, in Hollywood and there's this big population of Chinese people at this period in California. There's a lot of Chinese extras. And although obviously like the depiction of the setting, which is obviously Shanghai and what was then referred to as Peking, is kind of orientalist. There's a lot of kind of exoticized aesthetics. Yeah. It's not really in a way that comes off, to me anyway, it doesn't come off in like a really offensive way in the same way as if you're watching something like Fu Manchu, where it's just this like grotesque fantasy caricature. Mm-hmm. It's just like, this is kind of treated like any other glamorized location. Yeah, It's absolutely gorgeous. Obviously, most of it takes place in this train, but the train is really well designed by... The art director, Hans Dreyer, who is a frequent collaborator of uh, Mr. von Sternberg. Also, one of the most glamorous settings that one could have on a film, I believe. And I think you said last time when we were trailing this that train travel isn't glamorous anymore. And that's why there's no more. It's like every classic romance of the early 20th century is on a train. There's so many great train (laughs) films. I recently watched 
The Lady Vanishes, which is a great train film, which I'm sure oh, takes yeah. <laughs> takes inspiration from this. And then like more recent Bollywood films understand the importance of trains because like train travel yeah. is so much bigger than India. And I was just saying to you, the end of the last episode we did together that this is Reagan's America has ruined trains for American cinema. So ruined trains, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> but th- th- this train is so glamorous. So like when they get on the train, Anime Wong's character and Mali Nadeatrix's character both are sent to the same compartment. But it's like so, it's so luxurious. And they're sent to the same compartment because they're both kind of seen as a sign of scarlet women (laughs) because they're both sex workers. Well, the interesting thing about this, right, is that we actually have no idea about Anna Wong's character. Oh, okay. Because someone immediately points her out as being a ruined woman or like a sex worker of some kind. But she never delivers any of her own backstory. So this is entirely assumed by the people around her. Her identity is basically ambiguous for the whole film. And completely assumed by me as well, because I just took that as true. (laughs) Whereas, you know, Marlene Dietrich's character is this very famous nightclub performer slash courtesan named Shanghai Lily, who is referred to upon her very first appearance as a notorious coaster, meaning a woman who travels up and down the China coast essentially a public figure but she and anime wong are like visibly disrespected by other people on this high-end train yeah there's a really uh funny bit where this woman who is like a recurring character who owns a boarding house where only reputable guests come (laughs) turns up and kind of gives these ladies her card and is like you know you might want to stay here you know i only have the most reputable guests and marlene Dietrich's like why would you want to do that <laughs> it's so funny and like marlene's facial expressions in that scene are so funny because she's just so doing funny. like reaction shots and like anime wong is being really sort of dour and quiet and just like fuck no and then marlena is just like fucking with her and there's a point where she's like a what house clearly is like a double entendre <laughs> for like a horror house and it's like love her <laughs> it's so great and Anime Wong is like sat at the table. I think she's like playing cards or like writing yeah. or something. And in front of us, this like phonogram player. And it's like, how fucking glamorous is this train? It's just like, yeah, just gonna bring my uh, phonogram player on my records, just make myself at home. It's clearly it's the best compartment because you see the other compartments. And like all good train films, we have this ensemble cast including Warner Oland, who I mentioned earlier, but not by name, who plays Henry Chang, this uh, Chinese and white biracial character who's kind of sleazy and very quickly turns out to be the villain. And then you also have this very stuffy reverend and a guy who's smuggling diamonds and this German guy who turns out to be a opium dealer. And we also Honestly, have- Honestly, it's not, it's not a train without an opium dealer yes. and a guy smuggling diamonds. <laughs> That's what I always say. It's so good. But we've literally, like, I find it so funny that we've also just, like, completely ignored the film's male lead, who is technically, oh, yeah. <laughs> technically the second build character. And it's not like he's sort of a forgettable figure, but, like, he is kind of the straight man of the drama because his job is to be this very sort of stolid figure whose main emotional motivation is that he and Marlena's character, Shanghai Lily, were, used to be lovers five years ago, and then they broke up because she lied to him to try and make him jealous and he was just like get lost and this was this huge breakup for both of them but um this actor Clive Brooke this is his best known role he is a British actor he truly just looks like a guy he's truly a guy and it's like I'm sorry but Marlene Dietrich is the hottest woman who's ever existed and the most glamorous and can't see it but 
go ahead. You know. This is why Morocco is absolutely unreal viewing because it's <laughs> Gary Cooper and Marlene Dietrich. And if you've mm-hmm. never seen Gary Cooper in his prime, hardly anyone in history has ever been as hot as Gary yeah. Cooper. He is like <laughs> unbelievably hot. And this guy, as you say, he's just this kind of middle-aged guy. He's just a man. But I he's still buy it is the thing because like, they're both so wounded by this relationship and you can kind of see why she'd be attracted to someone who seems solid. Mm-hmm. Especially mm-hmm. if it was like a formative relationship for her because she was much younger. But it mm. does create this very intriguing and very 1930s dynamic, I think. And they have this mm-hmm. fantastic introductory scene where they're both looking out the window when the train is stationary and they notice that they are looking out of the windows next to each other and they have this long handshake and you kind of realise that they are former lovers and it's like, oh, what is what is the context here? There's also that great thing where somebody is known by a different name. So the name has been mentioned to the other person before, but they don't clock that it's the same person and absolute classic setup. <laughs> So what happens next is once we've established all these characters with this incredibly gorgeous opening sequence, like I love this opening sequence because we get these introductions to everyone. It's this really great marriage of silent film techniques and kind of the amazing visuals that von Sternberg was so famous for and like very funny dialogue because all of these characters Mm -hmm. are very precisely characterized in their first appearances. Mm -hmm. But once we've collected them all together in a kind of murder on the Orient Express style We have a couple of scenes with them on the train and then the train is stopped by bandits slash revolutionaries. And uh, we discover that the character Henry Chang is actually a leader among the revolutionaries and he is looking for one of them to keep as a hostage, which is where we get to the sort of the primary moral kind of conflict of the film. So basically the emotional core of this story is just this wounded relationship between the male and female leads where clearly they both have these intense feelings for each other but Clive Brooks character who is a military doctor named Captain Harvey he cannot bring himself to trust Shanghai Lily slash Madeline so he just thinks that she is out there sleeping with other men and he's hurt she's hurt him so much but at the same time every time they're together there's this electric energy between them there's this wonderful scene on the train where she like steals his hat and they kiss and we see that he's still got this wristwatch with her face like her photo in it (laughs) but he just can't trust her at all and then we are put in this position where this warlord henry chang's character is trying to weed out which of these people he wants to keep as a hostage and before that he he tries to get shanghai lily to stay with him because he wants to sleep with her And the captain, Captain Harvey, punches him, which immediately puts him in Henry Chang's bad books. And then because he can't get Marlene Dietrich, he decides he is going to rape Anna Mae Wong's character, Hui Fei, instead. And there's this really upsetting sequence, which also is very kind of indicative of what was permitted during the pre-code era, because there were quite a lot of films which had both rape-based narratives, but also ones with like a very feminist undertone because there's this scene where you see Anna Mae Wong being led away and you know what's going to happen. And Marlene Dietrich's character is really visibly distressed and she's surrounded by these men who like, they're kind of distressed, but they don't really care that much and they're like not willing to do anything. And this 
religious minister just tells her the only thing she can do is pray. And um, also, Henry Chang takes the doctor, Captain Harvey, as hostage because he is perceived as the most valuable person on the train because he is going to go and perform surgery on like some important guy in another city, mm-hmm. which kind of leads Marlena to sacrifice herself to save him. Um, so before we talk about the ending, let's talk a bit more about kind of the artistry of this film and the cinematography. The cinematography is by Lee Garns, followed very close direction from Sternberg in classic uh, Sternberg micromanaging. And there's some very iconic shots of Marlene Dietrich that I'm sure would come up if you just Googled Marlene Dietrich or if you just thought about Marlene Dietrich. It's probably one of these shots where she's her face is lit and it's very kind of high contrast with the background and she's smoking throughout the whole film which is also unfortunately smoking looks very cool um <laughs> and it, her and anime wong just like constantly in this like fog of smoke so it's like this very kind of smoky shot of her face and again like you were saying this kind of classic gaunt look of her face and this shot comes kind of after she's had this conversation with the guy that she's got history with and she's kind of like having this like introspective moment and the lighting in combination with the makeup artistry is really really striking and you've put here in the notes that it's makeup artist Dorothy Ponadell who did a lot of contouring and I found that like really interesting that it's like something that you sort of connect a lot with like contemporary makeup is something that was being done a hundred years ago to kind of create this effect yeah i mean apparently she was one of these makeup artists who was very well known in the industry because all the actresses who worked with her were like she makes me look incredible which is still how it works now who's <laughs> <It's> like Kristen <laughs> stewart having like her makeup artist that she's like besties with and all this stuff but um mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really interested because like I hadn't heard of this makeup artist, unsurprisingly, because there's not very many famous makeup artists to that extent. Mm-hmm. But the interviewer I was kind of looking at didn't describe it directly as contouring because that wasn't really a term that was used back then. And we mm-hmm. now think of as a bit of a Kardashian thing. But yeah. obviously the way that Marlena is being portrayed is like, first of all, there's this kind of light that comes down from above, which is very geared toward giving her these very prominent cheekbones and kind of showing the bones of her face in general. And also the makeup apparently involved like drawing basically just like a white line down her nose, which is highlighting, obviously. So you've got kind of cheek contouring and like highlighting on the nose and stuff. And, you know, she would spend like an hour in the makeup chair and look incredible. Apparently they were so close. Like she liked to hang out in the dressing room, fully nude, eating flowers. She liked to eat a tube rose. I was Googling it, like, is this edible? But apparently she would eat, like, tube roses, and then the makeup artist would do makeup on her for, like, an hour. So I guess they were very close. (laughs) Just, I love, I love to hear some little stories of classic Hollywood behaviour. Honestly, this doesn't happen now, and it should. Like, the arguments, the double-crossing with the pretending to fall off a horse... The weird eating roses. Also, another thing when I was watching it, because I know that Marlena Dietrich truly did fuck everybody. And watching it, because she's got, I mean, she could have chemistry with a spoon, but her and Anime Wong's chemistry is off the charts. And I was just like, 
really googling like anime wong bisexual yeah we have mark? this is one of the big questions it's like we don't know anything about anime wong's personal yeah. life in this era so it's possible i was like they must have they must have there is like. a recent historical fiction novel about those two i don't know if it's oh, wow. good but it does exist so you can check that out okay <laughs> kind okay. of google like anime wong marlena dietrich lesbian novel it's, it's there legit i mean marlena was like basically as out as you could be in this yeah. era it was definitely something that was well known and yeah. uh and she was very successful in her escapades for which we can only applaud her uh, <laughs> <laughs> she really did have them all like jimmy stewart two kennedys which kennedys <laughs> i don't know which ones were available in like the 30s <laughs> no oh no this was later on oh, okay she was shagging right till the end uh frank sinatra oh well frank uh, yeah and all the way through this she was married to the same guy and sure yeah. they weren't like hanging out but she married assistant director rudolf sieber in 1923 of course <laughs> very famously kind of when she started in germany she's from berlin she was very active on the kind of berlin cabaret scene in the 1920s uh going to drag bars and stuff like that which is probably where she saw performers who she based a lot of her great performances as cabaret singers on and then after she moved to hollywood she invented the term knitting circle for um, lesbian and <laughs> yes, bi women just iconic which is iconic and she was known for having a lot of women in her own uh, personal knitting circle edith piaf i believe edith piaf just great but yeah the chemistry between anime wong in this film is unreal there's like there's a scene where Marlene Dietrich finds anime wong with a knife and she's kind of gonna use it on one of these guys and Marlene Dietrich puts her arms around her to stop her and it's like so hot well, I think the implication <laughs> is there is that Marlene thinks that she's going to kill herself after she's been yeah, raped yeah, but we yeah. know that in the next scene spoilers <laughs> she goes and kills the villain she stabs yeah. the villain and becomes kind of the hero of the piece it's this really interesting through line for anime Wong's character because there's definitely kind of been critiques through the decades of Asian characters that like don't get to talk and are intentionally portrayed as very enigmatic and not having you know an explicit character development it's a little different in the context of 1930s cinema in part because these roles were so rare and in part yeah. because we are already working in a narrative and a subgenre that is very much about sort of mystery and the nature of truth you know because the whole st yeah. the whole concept behind the two main characters conflict is can you trust someone if you don't know the truth of what they've done mm -hmm. and obviously it would be better if anime wong is playing a more fleshed out character but her stage presence her screen presence is so impactful that yeah. it kind of just powers through that and then she gets this amazing kind of final act situation where shanghai lily saves her former lover by sacrificing herself and agreeing to stay behind as essentially the courtesan of this odious revolutionary leader. And then Anna Mae Wong's character sneaks off the train, sneaks into the building where they're all living at that point, and stabs him. And then tells Captain Harvey, I've just killed Henry Chang, you'd better get Shanghai Lily out of there now. So he saves her, but then 
the final kind of conflict between them of the film is that he still doesn't know that she has essentially saved his life or saved mm-hmm. him from being blinded, which is the threat that Henry Chang was putting toward him. He wants to save her and he tries to excuse it as like, I'd do it for anyone. But like eventually this conservative minister on the train who has ironically seen the error of his ways basically points out to the captain that he's misjudged her without telling him the truth. And kind of the final scene of this film is they have this romantic but ambiguous scene together. And then at the train station, there's this long sequence that kind of bookends the train journey, like the introductory scene where you see all the characters getting off. And then eventually the captain and Shanghai Lily reunite and kiss without them fully sharing all the information of what she's done to save him. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a really interesting ending because even though on the surface the two of them kiss at the train station and it's I think really good that it still emphasizes that ambiguity right up to the end even in the kind of happy ending moment and there's also the physicality of when they're kissing is really interesting as well because it's like they talk about not wanting to be seen and and then she's kind of saying like you know people come to train stations all the time to kiss their lovers because there's like too many people running around doing their own thing and then they're kind of kissing but they're kind of hiding at the same time so it's like I just thought that it was a really interesting physical setup at the end and they've both got gloves on and it's very kind of yeah secretive and weird <laughs> it's kind of crucial to Marlene's performance right because this whole film is all about kind of artifice and betrayal and truth as I said mm-hmm. but her performance is extremely artificial you know she's got this amazing charisma and sensuality and the film itself is very sensual like it's all about kind of this beauty and all this fascinating black and white lighting. But she is always performing. It's not kind of like a naturalistic performance and that Mm -hmm. fits with the character. But it also means that when you get these little flashes of vulnerability, it's like even more powerful. So in the first kiss they have on the train in the scene where she steals his hat, it's this very cinematic kiss where she's sort of being dipped and she's wearing this incredible outfit like all the way through she's wearing these completely absurd outfits like her first scene she's walking through this train station wearing all these like you know black feathers and this 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 hat you could like barely see through because it's all this (laughs) mesh across her face and stuff a gorgeous gothic outfit and then she's on the train kissing him and it's completely theatrical but there's this little moment where her eyes are opening and you see her kind of reaction there uh-huh. And then at the end, as you say, it's like they're hiding from the camera because it's their first private moment and we're not going to see the rest of their private lives. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's wonderful. Like you can really see the persona that she and Josef von Sternberg created for her is so apparent mm-hmm. here because she's obviously playing different characters in all these films, but they're all geared toward her star power and brand in a way that's really lost to modern cinema because yeah. we see so much kind of discourse about how there's no new movie stars. You know, it's like you can just about say that Timothy Chalamet and maybe Zendaya, when Zendaya's done a few more films, they are almost at the status of being like real movie stars. But there's this whole generation of like A-listers right now who are known for being in really big films like the Marvel franchise, but have no real brand in the way that you see from Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Because like with Mission Impossible coming out, there's been lots of chat about how Tom Cruise for all his 
intense darkness behind the scenes, <laughs> which is often part of like the star power of a star, yeah, is one yeah, of the yeah. final like big commanding movie stars of America. There's really no one doing it like the people of the 30s and 40s because like there's this whole artistic machine behind creating this persona and creating entire movies and roles that are designed for her and play into that and it results in something that is so fascinating and lasting and it's really interesting to look at the reception to this film, which was obviously a huge commercial hit at the time, but it was nominated for three Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Cinematographer. It won cinematography, but she wasn't nominated for Best Actress. Wild. Which is wild. It's a shame it wasn't nominated for costume. I don't know if they had costumes at this period. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page now. No, there was there was no costume here. It was, it was much shorter right. list. Despite being an, an Oscar nerd, I'm really not good on anything before, like, the 80s. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot more, it was a lot more limited then. Yeah. The costume is, if we can just go back and talk about that a bit, because another one of the things that I think is really important to Marlena Dietrich's kind of star persona is that she was a total fashion plate and that she was known for wearing these kind of extravagant costumes, not just in films, but in her real life as well. And once again, to allude to my great trip to the Film and Television Museum in Berlin, they've got like this whole room of just her costumes and it's all things from this film and from Morocco, but also an outfit that was made for her 40th birthday. And it'll be like something as good. And like you said, she wears so many different great outfits in this that are all absolutely ridiculous. And there's no way that she could have physically got them all on the train <laughs> like you know looking. well it's also like they're so like complicated because it's like you can't just fold up these yeah. outfits because there's so much feather involved <laughs> i mean this is truly the the gowns by era where instead oh my of being cottoned it, it's gowns by <laughs> i saw the gowns by credit and i was like yes here we fucking go travis banton who was a designer for many a-list actresses of this era. He designed for Clara Bow, who was probably the biggest female silent film actress in America um, in the film Wings, which I've not seen, but is like one of the greatest silent films. He also did the costumes for Mae West in I'm No Angel, which I highly recommend if you want one of the filthiest pre-code <laughs> films. This was her breakout role. And I love introducing this to people because they are just like, First of all, this was allowed. And secondly, this is what Mae West looked and sounded like. Because people kind of (laughs) are vaguely aware that she was this famous sexy star, but they do not Uh understand what she looked and sounded like, which is like not (laughs) what you'd expect. But yeah, he he did all... I mean, you can go and Google Travis Benton, but he did several of Dietrich's films, including Morocco, and then went on to work with, you know, Rita Hayworth and so forth. Also, my man Godfrey, Carol Lombard, if you want to see a hilarious screwball comedy from the 30s about someone who pretends to be a butler, which is a great topic in my opinion. <laughs> Absolute banger. Topic. One of those really amazing films from like the um the Depression era where 
they take on the Great Depression by making a plot so completely insane that like <laughs> they're just like, oh, he lost all his money in the Depression and now he's homeless, but he's going to become a secret butler for this millionaire family and fall in love with the daughter. And it's like, of course. <laughs> Isn't that just what people do when they don't? <laughs> I think they should bring back the gowns by credit. Like, I'm surprised that our man Peter Strickland has not had a gowns by credit because I remember watching the Duke of Burgundy and there is a perfumes by credit, which is one, one of, of my the greatest of credits times. of all time is perfumes by. <laughs> <laughs> also, I should say that Anime Wong's outfits in this are in- incredible gowns as well. There's oh, not a similarity, but like, not a kind of straightforward similarity anyway, but. Like the vibe, the kind of luxurious but slightly salacious vibe to the gowns on both of them works really well to establish their chemistry and their kind of camaraderie, even though they're both quite enigmatic women. They're both mysterious femme fatales, but mm. not fun in the slightest. Like these are not fun characters and Josef von no. Sternberg was not here to have fun. I saw this described as his only <laughs> comedy because it has a happy-ish ending. <laughs> oh my and god. And some jokes in between him, like, you know, tormenting everyone psychologically behind yeah. the scenes. And by jokes, it's like, it's got some things where you would, like, write, this raise an eyebrow. <laughs> yes, that's very clever. <laughs> oh, I also want to mention, just quickly, Anime Wong's hairstyle in this, which has genuinely got me considering getting exactly the same hairstyle. <laughs> I mean, you could do it because for I mean, you know, for listeners at home, Claire has very long, abundant black hair, so this could yeah. work. Yeah, and I've already got a fringe, but she's got this little kind of like short a bit at the front, so it kind of looks like she's got a bob at the front and then it goes very long. Bold. But when she puts her hair up, it kind of looks like she's got like a silent film era type bob. It's just really, really cool. <laughs> That's a very great gowns, beautiful gowns comment, isn't yeah. it? Well, we've complimented her performance at, le- at length, so we're allowed to talk about her hairstyle yeah. now. Her <laughs> hairstyle is cool as well. They're so she- glamorous. And then protagonist man Clive is just like wearing <laughs> this generic military uniform for the whole film. And it's just this kind of average looking man. Very average. Like he should be thankful that Marlena Dietrich bought him a watch at one point because it's probably more chic than anything else that he owns. Well, on that note, I feel that we've covered <laughs> covered everything in this gorgeous film. I mean, obviously you could write a whole book about this movie, but... I really enjoyed it and I'm looking forward to watching it again at some point. I'd quite like to see it at the cinema, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, than- it's only 80 minutes long and it's available on the Internet Archive if any listeners have decided to listen to this without watching. Yeah, watch this, watch Morocco. Blonde Venus is also tremendous, but it has a really iconic racist musical number. Uh, <laughs> which so many films of this period have. Yeah. No, I enjoyed it. And every year I'm like, you know where you do this kind of self-improvement thing where it's like, maybe this year I'll get into blah. I'm like, every year I'm like, maybe this year I'll get into watching more pre-code stuff, which is really, <laughs> it's a really stupid thing to say because they're all quite short. They're all very readily available. And they're all fun. 
Yeah, I know. I'll just get. They're all people having sex and getting murdered. Um, At some point, we should do an episode on the gold diggers of 1933. Do you know this? That's one that I've seen. Yes. Because there's this franchise of musical comedies, and it's like one of my favorite. (laughs) It's it's definitely the best of the series, but um, yeah. Also, it's just like an exceptional title for a film. Oh, absolutely. The fact that, like, during the Great Depression, there was this entire franchise of movies and stage plays which were just about gold diggers. Yes. In the midst of gold diggers being a huge part of pop culture but anyway we we have digressed thank you very much for listening to shanghai express there are some episodes with morgan available on the patreon by the time this comes out maybe there'll be another one but i'm not sure what our next one is there will be an episode with me and stefan about the exorcist you can find us in the usual places online overinvestedpodcast.com overinvestedpodcast at tumblr Overinvested podcast at Patreon um, and also on Instagram. You can find me at Gavia at Blue Sky, the new social network with very few people on it. You can find me on Twitter <laughs> at hello underscore Taylor and you can find me on Letterboxd at hello Taylor. Claire. You can find me on Twitter if it's working at Ms. Claire Biddles and you can find me on Letterboxd at just Claire Biddles where recently I've been logging films that I saw at Sundance London which were all good. Jealous. I look forward to seeing them when they come out in a hundred years. Yeah. Well on that note from our Shanghai Express film episode (laughs) topically. Farewell everyone. Goodbye.